0: guys, welcome to the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast. Just going to get this in and out, quick in and done this week. This uh, this episode is with James McAdams. He is an author of, you should go check out his novel, Ambushing the Void. Actually, he has some really interesting stuff coming up that if you're a fan of Infinite Jest, I would say keep an eye on him. You're going to like his future work. He also uh, did part of his dissertation on David Foster Wallace, so this is a guy who knows his thing. So, James McAdams. Again, I am Jesse Dram, find me at Jesse Dram on all the things, at Diamond Joe Quim on Reddit, wasn't trying to be dirty, shit just happens. Mr. Jessico on YouTube, uh, I don't have any song this week, sorry, I know everybody's waiting for with bated breath for how I'm going to ruin another classic song by squeezing in references to, you know, fucking tennis and whatnot, but there we go, so. James McAdams, I Hate Infinite Jest podcast, episode one fifteen. No, episode fifteen. Fuck.
1: That's my audio level. It's
0: pretty good. All right, guys, I hate Infinite Jest. Episode fifteen, pages four hundred and ten to four hundred and forty-two. Joining me as my guest this week, author James McAdams. How are you doing? Great,
1: thanks for having me, Jesse. This is going to be fun.
0: Nice. Yeah, we just had a whole little conversation about how we're both uh, Philly boys, or well, I'm a Jersey boy residing in Philly, boy. Oh, I fucked that up real quick. Not good with words. Why am I doing this podcast? I'm editing for. I, I'm a kindergartner. Uh, just. Talking, talking shit on a college student. You don't talk right, man. Um, so yeah, James is uh, an author. So any social media, anything to plug?
1: I don't do much. Uh, James T. T. is and Timothy McAdams. Twitter, you can find me. Um, that's really all I have going on.
0: Okay, and uh, read his book, Ambushing the Void.
1: Um, yeah, it's a Philly publisher. Shout out to Freight Edge Press. They have a lot of cool, um, sort of anarchy nonfiction books and weird poetry. It's sort of an experimental press. I think they're okay. in the South Philly somewhere, but uh, Freight Edge Press, they're a good,
0: good publisher. Okay, cool. Yeah, Freight Edge Press, go uh, check them out. So James, what is your uh, literary, about what, what got you into books in the first place and how did that lead you to this particular book that we discussed today?
1: Um, first book I got into, I vividly remember Christmas of eighth grade reading uh, Crime and Punishment, so it was like, you know, it's up in Philly, so it was snowing outside. I remember I had this like red blanket on, I was just like carrying this red blanket of, around Reading Crime and Punishment, which was a big book for me at the time. I guess it's like 500 pages. And I remember getting off on just, it was winter out, winter in Philly, and obviously the book's set in St. Petersburg, so everything's wintery there. And um, I just really got off on Dostoevsky, and that sort of started it. And then my, my teenage years, I spent a lot of time reading a lot of the Russians, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Gogol and, and this sort of longer books. And um, I remember a, a buddy I was working with when I was like 19, this is like 98 maybe, mm-hmm. um, knew I liked these long books. And he said, dude, here's this book by David Foster Wallace who nobody knew. And here's mm-hmm. this book called Infinite Chest, which nobody had ever heard of. And he was like, give this a shot, maybe you'll like it. It's like um,
0: 98, you got to it early, like hot off the yeah. presses.
1: So yeah, it's an interesting perspective. Maybe we can talk about it if you want. Um, mm-hmm. So I read it without any, the book has so much cultural baggage now. It's turned into this weird marker and you have to like be on sides. Mm-hmm. And back then it was just the book that I read and I thought it was funny and I read it pretty fast. and then I, I got into Wallace. Uh, I wrote a thesis on him and my dissertation's partly on him. And this is around 2010, and by then I was just like, I studied him too much, and I just like never read him again. But oh, I still have all the books, God. but I'm just like, fuck it. I, I think of writing a dissertation when I read him now.
0: So I'm, I'm going to do the white trash version of that. When I was learning to play the guitar, I learned so many Metallica songs, I no longer listen to Metallica. Because awesome. I just, I, I absorbed it so thoroughly. It's like, it's, yeah, I like it, it's very important to me. I can't listen to a fucking note of it anymore
1: yeah no I, it's same thing with guitar, like I remember in, in nirvana for me, but once you learn how to play come as you are, it's not as fun listening to it because they're taking it apart
0: oh, yeah, it, like it, 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 it robs yeah. Oh, yeah no it robs the magic of it i I've, I've said that like once you get like halfway decent as a comedian, comedy's not as fun anymore because you can you can like you can see the strings, you can see the zipper on on, yeah. on the on the monster outfit, you know
1: I was going to ask you if it's like that as a comedian. Um, so I imagine that wow. it it's like this guy's doing this. This guy has it timed out this way. This guy, this guy's pacing now on purpose. You know. Uh,
0: well, it's you know what I, I will say. Comedy's probably better as far as it it ruined music enough for me that the main thing I still love in music is like progressive stuff where I can't predict anything that's happening. So, but uh, as far as comedy, I feel like it gives me a deeper appreciation. Like because. You can see the way somebody's, like, like me personally, I almost enjoy the take, like, just the specific point of view on a joke than the actual joke itself. I can't remember the guy's name right now, but this is the last time I remember that, like, really blew my hair back. He was talking about – are you aware of, like, uh, the black supremacist group? They're, like, the five percenters?
1: Yeah, vaguely, but yeah.
0: Yeah. it's a, So the, the basic gist, he explains it in the joke. Like, yeah, their whole thing is uh, real big with the Wu-Tang Clan. Is like, yeah, only 5% of the world uh, really knows the truth of the world, and everybody else needs to be taught. And so, yeah, they formed in the 60s, so I called them up looking to join. They said, hi, 5%ers. And he said, you're still only at 5%? You guys are so fucking ineffectual. (laughs) And that particular angle was like, oh, that was so good, even though so many people would not even understand any of the context of that. But for me, it was was a delicious, beautiful, beautiful look on that. So, yeah, there's all different things. Um, I'm very curious as far as cultural, because I, this book reads as like very 90s to me. Now, I was, I was a, a kid in the 90s. Uh, I think by the time I got 2000, I was 13. So as somebody a li- little bit older, who was a little, you you come of age a bit right. more. Yeah. Um, how does that read to you as far as like where it was coming from out of the zeitgeist of that time?
1: Well, that's a really cool question, man. I I hadn't thought about it in terms of that. But yeah, coming it's been trying to recover my initial impressions is sort of hard. But I think when I read it when I was 18 in 1998, I was like, this guy's doing for literature, like, this is the perspective that I'm getting from, you know, Doug Marsh from Built to Spill or from the Sonic Youth Gang or, or from Cobain, like that kind of child of the divorced 60s growing up in Watergate, we don't believe in everything, anything, everyone's marketing to us all the time, everything's bullshit, that sort of 90s thing. So it seemed like a continuation of of MTV, of, of grunge, of um, even sports at the time. Alan Iverson was my hero growing up, uh, you know. So that kind of rebellious, fuck you, we're gonna do everything our own way, don't market to us. Mm. We're going to try to find something sincere, even though nothing's really sincere. The book really fits into that 90s thing so well. It's not like this isolated work of genius or weirdness. I mean, it really did make sense to me then. And I remember reading it and giving it to all my friends. I was a back at, at that time, the asshole that said, hey, read David Foster Wallace. I would never do that <laughs> now because it would get you punched in the face. But, um, and yeah, all my friends who grew up, and we weren't like hyper literate Harvard English grads. We were just like guys in a punk band. You're just like, this makes sense
0: to us. Okay. Huh. Interesting. So, yeah, you know, it's, I, it's funny. You hear this stuff so much that you don't actually stop and observe it. Like, just what you were saying, I almost feel like that was straight out of, like, uh, anytime you're watching some retrospective where they talk about Nirvana coming and, like, blowing hair metal off the scene and, like, oh, yeah, that's right. That is really – that's not just, like, a thing the TV told me. It is, like, yeah, no, there was this entire – it was an entire generation suddenly rejecting the the status quo all at once, which is uh, a little different in, in my age. Again, I feel like I caught the last little bit of that before the internet really took hold. And like, I feel like now there's just so many different directions for people to go in that like, I, I feel like I feel like my generation is, or particularly the ones a little bit under me have lost a little bit of that generational camaraderie because there's just so many different directions to go as far as like your pop culture and your art and like what you're absorbing. Like I could tell you for a fact, like my top 10 albums of the 2010s, most people have probably never even fucking heard of. Yeah. And that's and that's not me trying to be cool. That's, that's a bummer that like nobody knows that because now you could, uh, I think I read something once where they talked about, like, well, if distribution was like the internet in the 70s, like, we never would have had a Led Zeppelin. Like, some people were just okay with Led Zeppelin, but you had like five options and they were the biggest. So everybody was just into them.
1: Yeah, yeah it's interesting. There's, I don't know what's, it's hard to say if it's good or bad. You know, it's just life now. There aren't really the gatekeepers. So that's a
0: good Exactly. Yeah. Everybody, everybody can, you know,
1: musicians, comedians, everybody can get their work out there, but. I always feel like FOMO is a big thing for me because I'm sure there are 3,300 bands out there. that are amazing that I haven't heard of and I don't have the time to listen to and I don't have the time to find because there are 9,000 other bands out there on Reddit that I can look at wherever the fuck you find bands.
0: From. Yeah, it really does bother me. Uh, just knowing that there's good stuff out there that I just can't find. Oh, yeah. And it does, it, it also bothers me a little that like when the distribution is so much that like, you know what it is? kind of like uh, you can see the missing links between all other bands. So like nobody really sounds too different from anybody else because I can put like, oh, well, they sound a little bit like this, which sounds like this, which sounds like this. So like you can kind of like build a family tree of music. Nothing can really feel radical because you can always like pick out the other things in it, I guess.
1: Yeah, there's that line. I heard a song on a satellite radio the other day and I was like, oh, this is a new Arcade Fire song. And then it was actually like a Bright Eyes song
0: from 2004. <laughs> it was good Arcade Fire is one of those bands I could never understand. I w- actually I would put them just like Infinite Jest. A bunch of people telling me how great it is. David Bowie of all people said it was his favorite band. Yeah. And I just can't, I can't figure it out. We have to start. An
1: I hate Arcade Fire podcast.
0: <laughs> that might be the next step. That might be the. Uh, you know There's just something coming from a heavy metal background where it's like. There's like 15 people in this band and it sounds yeah. like three instruments. I don't understand how yeah. they make this little noise. It's but a little um, <laughs> but uh, so you became, what was your uh, thesis dissertation a little bit? How did you really get into, what were your um, takeaways? I think
1: the, the thesis was, so Wallace in his essays, I don't know how far you've gone into them, but and it, it's in the book, but it's through the characters mouths. But in his wow. essays, he's always saying we have to be sincere. It becomes annoying. We have to be sincere. We have to be earnest. The new sincerity. These are what the postmodern people are doing, like Pynchon and Barth, but I'm going to go beyond them. He's always saying it. So that my thesis was like, well, this dude's always saying we should do this. So what, where is it in his fiction? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an exploration of that. Um, I didn't do IJ as much. I did some of his short stories mm-hmm. and his first novel Burn the system. And then the dissertation was more about representations of addiction and mental illness in the contemporary novel so books like uh the corrections by jonathan franson and uh, um and a couple other wallace books there because he's always writing about morbidity of some sort Mm -hmm. so that's sort of the general sense um i can hear people turning the podcast off as i talk so
0: that's okay we don't need them Fuck them they can they can go to their other book podcasts of which they surely exist I've actually been thinking of getting, because I know a few people in recovery, I don't know if it would be like a, a footnote episode or something, but I'm thinking of just like getting them to read some of the AA chapters and getting like their thoughts on it. Because uh, it really, as somebody who is just like in the orbit of the, of knowing so many people in the system, like I, a, a lot of it rings true. So I'm curious, somebody who's like actively involved in AA, what they would think of that.
1: Yeah, I don't want to go on too, too long here, but I was thinking, because you were talking to Josh about like when he read it the first time. Mm-hmm. So when I read it when I was 18, I remember thinking the, the film theory stuff was really cool, mm-hmm. and thinking the political terrorism shit was really cool, and just breezing by all the recovery stuff. So I was 18, I hadn't really lived life yet. Mm-hmm. And right. now, honestly, dude, I mean, I'll probably, this is the first time I've read like the Murray Steeply bullshit ever again, I'll probably never pick it up again. But when I look at it or when I think of it, I think of the 200 pages about recovery. That's the book to me, Mm -hmm. that's all it is. The rest is just like hijinks and bullshit.
0: See, I would like to go back and reread all the Marathon steeply. I've said a few times, there's like a waiting for Godot feeling to me just because they're just sitting around for something that I don't know if it's ever gonna happen, but I don't, I feel like I can't appreciate the full of their conversation until I have all the context although I'm liking some of the back and forth of it. But um, what
1: that um, from a book called Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon, Uh, there's a famous scene where two characters are on the coast of London talking about the theories that animate the novel. Okay, the novel that Wallace grew up. So it's sort of that like father killing, the son killing the father thing. Mm -hmm. You don't need to know any of that. It doesn't
0: work. (laughs) Um, so yeah, one last, uh, one last thing and then we'll just get into the breakdown here. So as somebody who became an author themselves, um, pardon me. Yeah. How would you say he has, uh, influenced your writing? Would you say what, what in particular, do, do you think you picked up anything from him?
1: I'm sure I did. I mean, when I read this, when I was 20, when I was a, a beginning writer, he was the world to me. I was one of those annoying kids. Mm. Um, I'm 40 now, and it's sort of the opposite. I'm trying to move as far away from him as possible. I, I try to, I, I actually, I'm so far away from him that I, I only write flash fiction now. I'm a flash fiction editor, so I I'll write like 800 page short stories. Okay. I think there's something like ethically offensive about writing a 1,000 page book. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot going on in the country, especially since May. Like, I don't want mm. someone to spend the time reading my thoughts for 1,000 pages when they can be out doing social work, then mm-hmm. uh, I'm not blaming Wallace for that, but I just don't want to be in that league. No,
0: blame, blame him. You're on the right podcast for that.
1: <laughs> um, so I, I think I've reacted, I think it's just the anxiety and influence thing. I don't want people to be like, oh, this guy's trying to write like Foster Wallace, so I do the opposite. So I'm very minimalist and very um, unlearned in my writing, the way this okay. is just like so thoroughly researched or just made up. So I'm the opposite, I guess.
0: Okay. I, I do feel like that's the natural way of things. Like when we get heroes that are kind of like, I feel like they're artificial fathers in a certain extent in that we're supposed to look at them with awe and like want to live up to them. But then at a certain age, you need to kind of push them away. It's the healthy thing to push them away a little bit.
1: I'm curious, Um, without invoking the, the gods of comedy like prior, who are some people maybe from Jersey or Closer to your age that are big comedians. One of my favorite comedians, a Jersey guy named Artie
0: Lang, who's on the Howard Oh School. yeah, I love Artie Lang. Love have you
1: read Crash and Burn, his drug memoir?
0: I, I haven't read a whole lot. For whatever reason, I haven't the only comedian's book I think I have ever read is uh, well I read a few by John Hodgman, but he's not really a stand-up. His books are hysterical though. Uh, he was like a, a, a daily show correspondent, but right, he, has, right, right, right. Uh, he was on the old like geico commercials or symbols. Yes, wait, no, he was on like the, the uh, one of those, like, you know, I'm a PC and I'm an Apple.
1: Apple. Apple. Yeah, yeah. But I saw yeah. at Lehigh, he was good.
0: Oh, okay, but yeah, his his books are hysterical. Um, but yeah, other than him and like George Carlin's autobiography, I have not read a lot, which is funny. I have a cousin who's a big fan of his who has all his books. I know enough that I know the title, Too Fat to Fish. Yeah, which might yeah.
1: Be- crash and burn the man. It's, I, I'm reading, I'm writing a book about actually talking about Wallace, I'm pretending I'm not influenced by him, but I'm writing a book set in rehab now. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm reading all these drug memoirs and Artie's book, Crash and Burn, came out in like 2012. It's about his opiate addiction. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, man, it's the most detailed, riveting drug book I've read. And it's by a comedian. It's good. It's funny. I mean, yeah. It's earthy. It's real. It's like the kind of book you read five pages and you put it down. You're like, Jesus.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of that, uh, it's, it's enough that I tend to turn away from comics who don't have trauma just because I feel the way the way the trauma is uh, triangulated into entertainment for me is like just so rich and beautiful that I, I actually I have a problem when I see a comedian who just doesn't have any problems. I couldn't agree more. That's why I grew up
1: in the 90s. So Seinfeld's my favorite show. But uh-huh. Jerry Seinfeld is the most boring comedian because he's so fucking happy.
0: Uh, yeah, it's like it's. There's a line Patton Oswalt said once, which was, "Yeah, he's funny, but like, who gives a shit?" That was very much my take on uh, Seinfeld and them. And there's there's a lot in comedy, like there is a music, where it's like, listen, all credit due, legend, legend in his field. I don't like anything he's ever done, and you know, it's just kind of a thing. Um, as far as local guys, I know I'm trying to think. Uh, Che Guerrero is a friend of mine. He has a whole uh immigrant story, and I know he just released a, a an album that's on Spotify, but let's see Che Guerrero um I don't know, it, it's I, i'm I'm thinking more like my contemporaries uh, Shane Gillis is the big one out of this scene, but he got in a lot of trouble so no. um, a lot, of, <laughs> a lot what of people that What
1: was that happening to a lot of people these days.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it, let's put it this way. It didn't surprise anybody. It right. didn't surprise anybody. Um, my personal favorite from locally, even though he's like way older than me, I never met him, is uh, Kurt Metzger, another guy who's gotten into some trouble. But he has this whole background of like, he was born into the Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh. And like, it was only when he was attending art school in Philly that like, he gets real into like, yeah, so I had sex for the first time and it turns out pussy is better than God. But then, like, you know, I know there's the whole joke, like, oh, I had to come out as straight. Like, no, I had to come out as a normal straight heterosexual male to my mom, who just, like, I'm supposed to be the first person to never masturbate. Like, that is, that, that is what the church tells us. And I, I, find, ch- I, didn't
1: know, I didn't know he was local. I heard the name. Uh,
0: I think, yeah, he was originally, I think he's from Tom's River. But, like, he did, uh, when I was first listening to his podcast, he was talking about, like, strip clubs in South Jersey that I grew up in. Yeah. Okay, so I think we need to get into uh, this particular chapter. That is pages 410 to 442. Um, trying to think. Okay, we are back at Enfield, where the whole uh, Mario's movie thing is still happen- happening. Hal has smoked four... Sorry. Uh, you know the format enough. If you have anything to say at any point, just interrupt me. Actually, not a long chunk of notes this week, so... All right, Hal has smoked weed four times today. His tooth aches and he feels guilty about his complete lack of action during the Escaton fiasco. He buries his sorrows in sugar. Mario's film only depresses him as it reminds him of his deceased father. The film is currently showing puppets representing Rodney Tyne and an infamous Quebecois femme known as Luria P. This is where Tyne came up with subsidized time, by which years are now sponsored. Hal knows a lot about this as the only two things he's ever written academically were the ones about Steve McGarrett, Hawaii Five-0 and about TV advertising's demise. And now we find out a little bit. And this is pretty prescient, although I literally have in my notes here, I never took them out. They're like, I don't know what he's talking about, this is dumb. And then like three paragraphs <laughs> later, I'm like, never mind, he's a genius, he figured that all out way ahead of time. Um, so basically, network TV had been in trouble due to VCRs and laws regarding commercials. They were having trouble attracting advertising at desirable rates. Cable had a lot to do with this. Uh, So the basic gist I could come up with was cable offered an advertising option to smaller companies that otherwise couldn't afford it that were just 30 second painted still images, uh, in particular described as Nunhagen aspirins, which uh, from what I can gather here, because they weren't um, legislated in what their content could be. They were able to show these really lurid vivid ads that like hit people at a very deep level but due to content stuff broadcast tv could not do those kinds of commercials that am i getting that right
1: uh, honestly you're you've delved into this in far more detail and far more thought than iver did um although it was the thing in the night like you probably don't even know what I'm talking about but then in the 90s I still remember like 1994 like a NYPD Blue came out and there was a sex scene and there was like a, an ass on TV like you mm-hmm. could see a girl's ass and everybody in like 8th grade was like staying up until 10 o'clock and, like you're gonna see a girl's ass on Channel <laughs> and like, it was this huge thing and then, then HBO started getting in everywhere in the late 90s so the, the idea of censorship and content control and stuff and how that relates to advertising might be something to look into more. Honestly, I never thought that much about this, mm-hmm. breaking it down in terms of what the ads were the way you've been doing it, which is cool. Um, um to lead the okay. way, but I'm just giving you some 90s perspective on yeah. ads tied to content. See,
0: see, uh, from, from what I could glean, well, all right, I, I just knew in general, like, uh, so the whole thing with cable is that cable runs on cable's content as far as like censorship is all voluntary the the argument going back to this and this is just i i know a weird amount of like broadcasting history oh, yeah. <laughs> is uh the whole argument is you could do whatever you want on cable because people are paying for it the whole issue with broadcast and really the only legal argument for them being so strict on everything is they are free waves in the air that anybody can pick up for free And because and and the government owns those pretty much the government owns the broadcast towers in some relation or another. And that's why they had those initial laws before Reagan fucked it up that like, you know, kids programming has to have a certain amount of educational value. It's that certain thing like you're using the government stuff here. It's going out to everybody. We need to have a little bit of content control. But when it came to cable, you were very specifically paying for that to be broadcast into your home. So technically you can have whatever you want. Uh, that's why in like the last 10 to 15 years, we've really seen a lot of that, like, you know, comedy central just decides like, we're, we're saying shit now. And if it's past midnight, we're just going to say fuck. And, uh, like they had a little bit of content restriction, but that was more in relation to like advertising and what they wanted to advertise on. You know, what? I'm realizing now, I think the only reason I know all of this is because of professional wrestling. Cause there was, <laughs> but, you know what? Fascinating. how does like, wrestling
1: play into it? well i would cool. thought it'd be more comedy central Does that makes sense to me
0: um well Co- comedy central had its own thing i think it's particular to wrestling because in the 90s there was like the biggest level of competition ever because there was wwe then wwf uh which has been around since the 70s and then there was wcw now wcw was a bunch of old companies that had been bought up and basically consolidated so it's like they have a history, but not really like they kind of bought everyone else's history and then went on from there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so, and that one was owned by Turner broadcasting and they had this whole era where the suddenly WCW was like challenging WWF, the big guy. And it, it got to the point where people who have no interest in advertising whatsoever were literally like, every Tuesday morning, like, ooh, who won the ratings war last night? Because it was so back and forth. And then you got all these other details in there where, like, well, WWF went a little raunchier, but then they lost a bunch of their advertising. So how does this work out for them in the long term? I'm reading this at, like, 12 years old when I should be doing anything else. (laughs) But here I am on a podcast 20 years later telling you about it, so I guess I didn't waste my time now, did I, Mom?
1: It stayed in your brain. (laughs) Well, you're helping me. Uh, You educated me, man. I always... When I read this thing, I just go straight to, okay, Netflix. And I never really think about the process that he's, he's sort of analyzing. Mm-hmm. He does this so well, not to, not to kiss his ass, but there are a lot of, not just prescient things, but when he says, okay, take a premise and run with it. He does mm-hmm. it earlier with Videophony, which we've all gotten to deal with in five months. Right. It's like, every. Okay. Okay, what happens if everyone's gonna watch everybody? Okay, then everyone's gonna be self-conscious. Okay, then what happens? Okay, then a market starts for masks. And then mm-hmm. what kind of masks will people wear? And you can I, only do these things for like 14 steps.
0: Mm-hmm. See, I do think part of, part of his writing is, uh, yeah, it, it's famous with um, the writers of South Park. They talk about how they write their show. And they say, they always use the format of, if so, then what? Like, okay, so we have this premise then what so we we, you don't want to have so this but then this happens like no no one thing needs to flow from the other and if you take that far enough you can get some pretty ridiculous things which I think in David Voss Wallace led to some pretty prescient things because when you're really like this happens in comedy a lot too where it's like okay I have this premise and then my personal thing is like I need to try to come up with a joke in any angle I go with it And then as I try it out a few times, the weaker branches will fall off, but I'll see what's the main route to go.
1: That's really cool with South Park. I didn't know they put it together that way, but yeah,
0: I think I work that way
1: too. It sounds familiar to me.
0: If I could recommend to anybody listening, six days to air is one of the most fascinating documentaries ever. I think it's like an hour and it's just about how South Park operates of like, they only have seven days to make a new episode and it, that their entire production process is fascinating to me. I'll check that out. That sounds good. It's, it's literally signing on for 20 years of your life to be under a lot of stress all the goddamn time.
1: Do they have, not to get too far adrift, but do they have like the whole pack of Harvard people like The Simpsons or is it still just like Trey and the other dude and a couple other guys?
0: I think I, I, in that particular documentary, Bill Hader of all people from SNL is there uh, and uh, what's his name? Vernon, Vernon Chatham, who, uh, he's been with them for a while. I remember him from the Wonder Shows and crew, which I don't know if you've ever seen that, but that's mind blowing. Dude, you want to talk like, I still have that little hinge of like MTV worship. Cause I remember it like the state is one of my favorite shows ever, even though I was like seven when it came out, but from the state to, uh, Wonder Shows and which came out in like two thousand. Four or something. It was this like nightmare children's show. It's amazing. I recommend looking it up. But so he's one of the writers on that. But I still think it mostly comes down to Matt and Trey, and everybody else is just like kicking stuff in. Right. They're more or less feeding the furnace, which is those two. Right. So
1: I didn't um, know Bill Hader was involved. It's interesting. He's one of my heroes now. Barry is one of my favorite shows on TV.
0: He claims that he invented the fish dicks joke from that episode of South Park with Kanye West. So. Yeah, no, definitely watch that uh, documentary. Um, okay. In addition to creating a national anxiety over the state of tongue cleanliness, the no code ad led to the demise and reconsolidation as one of the big four broadcast companies. A video rental mogulette, Noreen Lache Forche, convinced the broadcast to consolidate and formulated a plan of attack against cable. Cable had gotten big by promoting themselves as freedom for the audience, not to be held by the big four, but to escape the shackles of cable watching what you want, whenever you want, hiring an ad great Tom P. Veals, who will show up later, and argued that cable choices are still... I love his idea of choice, where the whole, like... Because it seems like the entire premise of this novel is, like, well, you have... A, it, about free will, like, but then again, how much choice do you actually have? Like, do you have, do you have free will of something? What's the difference of having a free will to choose between four things or 54 things or 500 things you're always going to be limited by your number of choice and uh i
1: I couldn't agree more i mean i think marae and steeply especially in this section are hitting that a lot yes and and it sort of ties a lot of stuff together like the netflix the interlace Mm -hmm. too many too many options to um so many options that have become stultifying and addicting. Mm -hmm. and we see that obviously in different parts of the Sierpinski gasket that Josh and you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Come back with the tennis. Um, but I was sending this to you in email, I'm just curious to talk to you as a human being, like, do you have trouble watching stuff nowadays streaming? Because all I think about, I was telling you, I'll just spend an hour looking at 90,000 options and I can't pick mm-hmm. one. And I'm like, I'm missing everything else.
0: Um, my particular way of uh, grabbing that dragon by the tail is, making a lot of uh playlists like on on Amazon I have about 300 movies in like the my stuff thing right. so that keeps me because that way it's like it's almost like uh the looking around thing almost feels productive because yeah I'm wasting time I could be doing anything else in the world but I'm saving myself that confusion later down the line like Amazon Prime, I think, is a good example because, uh, well, it helps that I know what I like. I'm a little fucked in that I'm all about novelty. I, there's very few things I watch. I, I'll re-watch over and over again. So okay. for me, this whole working from home thing, I have watched so many classic films. I just never, get, in terms of endearment, who would have thought how oh, fucking great that was? Yeah, <laughs> You
1: did not seem like a terms of endearment guy.
0: <laughs> I am a big sucker for like chick flicks, everything like that. I got I got fried green tomatoes on that queue, ready to go. So, but, uh,
1: when you make a playlist, would you would it be like how um, granular is it? Is it like horror movies, slasher films from '77 to '83, or like
0: you know they tend to come in little chunks. Uh, unfortunately, the navigation on the Prime app is not great. It's all like one line, and you have to go left to right. But I can see, like, okay, clearly I was in a kung fu flick. Uh, I don't know why I put that specific kung fu flick. Um, yeah, like, okay, I was in that mood because I have, like, seven of those in a row. And then, like, it's a bunch of stuff from the 70s. And then, like, okay, Sam Paul stuff. And uh, I just I, I try to keep control of it by, like, watching all the old stuff first. Like, I have so much newer stuff on there. Amazon Prime is just the best for me because it has all the old movies. Like, I do not give a shit about Netflix's, like, oh, they have more, you know, Marvel shit. Could not care less. Give me old stuff I never got around to.
1: Yeah, Amazon has the HBO library, which makes it awesome. So At least it used to, so you could watch The Wire, The Sopranos, or Six Feet Under, or anything, whatever you want.
0: I think they're still tethered. Um, Yeah, The only thing David Flosser Wallace seemed to got wrong, he, he got the order a little bit wrong in what happened, whereas... Netflix came up as its own independent force, wherein <laughs> this it was forged out of the ashes. In our world, it would be the equivalent of like if NBC, ABC, and CBS all died, and then they made Netflix. Right. So he's a little off, but I'm sure we'll probably see that in the years to come. I don't know who owns Netflix, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was like General Electric or anything.
1: I assume Time Warner or Disney owns all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just pretend that they're competing, so we it, feel like we're we have choice. You know
0: the I, I, Toys. I remember of all things on dating apps that actually stuck out because yeah. when uh, OkCupid got bought by the people from Tinder huh? and slowly it just started becoming more and more Tinder-like and it became... Thankfully, I found myself a good woman and got the fuck out of there and I don't have to deal with it anymore. Yeah. But I'd like uh, a woman to watch Terms of Endearment with. At, nope, I watched it on my own. She thought I was a fucking dork for watching. Oh, wow. That. That's, that's a that's relationship killer. Okay. <laughs> like, eh, whatever, she can deal with it. <laughs> I made her, what the fuck did I make her watch for the first? Ah, it's not, it's not important. Okay. Um, anyway, as a result of all this. A
1: quick, well, quick, creepy note. I'll just be a creepy author. Go for it. Online dating is so amazing when you want to create a character. Because people are just pouring their souls out there. And oh, can yeah. On. I, I'm not interested in a girlfriend at all. I have a girlfriend. But I, I'm like writing something now and I'll have a girl in mind. And I'll be like, here's this female character. And I'm like, eh, I don't really see her. <laughs> I can go online and sweep through 200 people and so I'm like, that's, I think that's the the vibe. Mm-hmm. And then this girl lists their hobbies and all this shit. I'm like, that's the fuck character.
0: It's so easy. I feel like not specifically dating sites, but online in general, I feel like we're all used to having a microscope on us enough that uh, you don't meet as, <clears throat> as many odd characters anymore. Because I feel like people know how to hinge themselves but online that's where you find the weird shit i have a 10 minute bit in my act all about one girl i saw on okcupid where pretty much like the whole thing it's like there's the picture and the age and the location and then the very first the very first text you write yourself that's not just like a multi-choice you pick the very first text is supposed to be your introduction like you know hi i'm shelly i love my dog and my mom and i will never forget this the very first thing that says is if you think israel has a right to exist you can fuck the fuck off right now like i want that date i want that date just that, what what made this your first tall rich handsome fuck that no zionists and that's just
1: that's a good bit yeah The first line is great. I mean, IJ became sort of a meme because the first line is, I don't know how often I've read like, no David Foster Wallace, fuck boys, or don't tell me to read Infinite Jest.
0: It's like a famous like copy paste first line. Yep. No, that was four times or 10 times. That was in my girlfriend's profile and Ooh. i i mentioned it in the first message i just said so like the listen,
1: podcast is a is a rose to her
0: <laughs> yes exactly i i said like listen i love everything i saw in there but once i saw the infinite jest thing i could have popped out of the screen and kissed you so let's go on a date and that's all it took so when you, you know, get married
1: you can like burn the book or something that, out.
0: that's right yes we're going <laughs> we're going to jump over a copy of broom the system that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
1: it's not worth reading jumping it over is probably the best
0: thing to do <laughs> I still want to check out his other stuff. I tend to like his essay stuff. So I need to. Um...
1: I mean, God forbid I encourage anyone to read, read him nowadays. But The Pale King, which is what he was writing when he died, is, is amazing. It's ten times better than The Jest because it's shorter. Yeah. Okay. I Even mean, Jess is just silly, which is still good. We need silly. But The Pale King is an old man writing. It's very different.
0: Okay, I'll check that out. Honestly, Infinite Jest, one of the hardest things for me was the tone. I don't think I quite grasped the tone of this book until I actually found a guy online who goes under the name Infinite Jensen who had done all these sketches. And then then once I saw the sketches from the book and they were kind of cartoony, like, okay, if I'm looking this, I was definitely looking at this as just, like, real people and it didn't make any sense to me. But once it was, like, a little more cartoony in my head, it's like, okay, I think I have a better idea of how this universe works and the mechanics of it.
1: You're, I mean, it brings us back to what you said about South Park. I'm making this up, but South Park might have started in 96 or 98. It's very much... 97. Kind of, wait, 97? Yeah. It's very much the same kind of move. Like, let's be hyper articulate and hyper erudite, but sneak that in by being silly and pastiche and cartoony because we don't trust people who are super smart and erudite Because Mm -hmm. they're boring and they're lying to us. So we're going to be cool. Just the way, like, as musicians, sometimes we don't trust the super, super, super polished bands because it's overproduced. No, Um, don't. Sort of where I came from. Like, I want stuff to, I want to hear like you fucking up guitar because it makes it more real. And that's, Mm -hmm. it really is a 90s ethos. I never really thought about it until you brought it up. I'm glad you did. It's Mm -hmm. such a child of the 90s.
0: Definitely. Uh, there, there's a little tidbit on music. Uh, I, I actually am really not good with guitar tones, but one of the things I love in the '90s is when the guitar is so over-distorted, and you can just hear like the chunky, like weird noises, like between chords. Just <clears throat> like um,
1: the the beginning of the chorus from Radiohead's "Creep," where Johnny Greenwood. Yes. Just...
0: <laughs> or he, even in, uh, uh, or car. Mm -hmm. Or or even like Zero from uh, Smashing Pumpkins. Like so much of that intro is not actual chords or notes. It is just electronic interference in between like his guitar pickups in between notes. It's so beautiful. That's a good point. That's super cool. I
1: wonder, we could probably delve into that the way he's delving into interlaced. Cause you know, I was playing guitar then at 14 and that was just around the time when like all the pedals were sort of affordable for just some stupid kid from suburbia. Like maybe Mm -hmm. they're 70 or 80 bucks. Yeah. But, you know, in the 80s, you would need $500 or need to be in a studio to get it. And even then, back then, you started to get them into your guitar, I mean, in your garage. And you didn't know what you were done.
0: Oh, yeah. Dude, when I see some of the old heads and, like, their classic pedal collection, I was so spoiled because I was just getting into it when they had, like, the the cheapy, like, fast food, like, get your combo amp it has everything on it, right. mostly. You can't really, like, fine tune anything but i'm like yeah this is fine i don't care let's go give me you
1: spoiled give- too. i'm sorry to interrupt you were spoiled too because you never my worst thing because i don't have a musical ear was struggling to learn how to play just to keep saying come as you are even though it's the easiest thing of all time but the, by the time you came probably every goddamn song was on the tablature was online so you never oh yes
0: yep no it was a i remember our middle school librarian was so excited that we would come in and print out guitar tabs because we didn't have printers at home and like fuck it it's the school's ink we don't care and just walking around with, like these bind these binders of like fucking metallica that's great that were probably like the tablet was probably made by kids my own age with nothing better to do that's awesome Ugh. Yeah, uh, she
1: has no idea like the, you're going to get like Megadeth, like antichrist
0: lyrics <laughs> look Ooh, at what, it's a reading <laughs> what are you what, what are you putting out these day mister Dre? dr i'm like killing is my business and business is good <laughs> oh okay um uh, so yeah the lace forche woman would be immortalized as the lace in interlace film cartridges uh so yeah quick summary that's what happened advertising had been cut out of entertainment and subsidized time became an attempt by the government to give that industry a shot in the arm and a new avenue to promote their wares. Uh, the main ad man from Interlace, Tom P. Veals, became the PR manager for Johnny Gently's campaign and put its goals in better focus that ultimately led to his victory. Footnote shows that Shtit is a major, major fan of the president, seemingly to his reputation's detriment around Enfield. Only put that because it's another interesting Trumpism that, like, Yeah. Yeah, being a fan. Dude, I don't get You know what it is? I still go back and look at 4chan from time to time just to see what the animals are fucking saying, because they're all lunatics. And I'm just struck by, like, these, these are, like, teenagers, and their punk rock is liking the president and being racist. Like, who would ever the fuck have seen that coming? Like, how?
1: Well, you made me, like, um, recover this upsetting memory of my teenagehood when I thought I was rebelling by, and you and Josh talked about this, And before I forget, shout out to Josh, because I've researched this so much that I don't learn much anymore. Mm -hmm. I never thought about subsidized time, the advertisements being like clean things, because Johnny Mm -hmm.
0: Reynolds, that was awesome. Uh Yeah, no, that was a great tidbit that I never, but yeah, it was late on the money.
1: Yeah, it was. But also when I was like 14 to 16, I had my Ayn Rand face. Because it was like the, all my friends were vegan, you know, straight edge punks. And that was like the second level rebellion, I guess. And now it's embarrassing. Really, I feel like I came out of the closet saying I was into
0: Rant. (laughs) I had so much of that in high school where it was just like, here's the thing. I still, I like punk music. Punk ethos, I have never, ever liked because I see it now as adults still. Like when we've had a lot of people like shitting on Biden where it's like, yeah, he's not great, but come on, the other guy. But you're seeing so much of this, no, I'm not going to vote for, you know, I'll vote third party. It's like, great, the ultimate punk ethos in that you take no responsibility for yourself because it's too fucking cool to make a choice. So you're going to be cool, Mr. Pure, and we're all going to be in hell. Thanks a lot. But uh, I just remember those, fu- like, the kids with the Bush is Not My President t-shirt, those kids were assholes. They didn't know anything, but they had to, like, yeah, I don't know. So, uh, and I got taken in by a bunch of jerk offs and thought, like, yeah, this sixty year old racist British guy—that's that's my dude.
1: Yeah. Well, he it sounds like he figured it out. So you're good.
0: Yeah. I still listen to that racist British guy. Just again, just to know what the other side is saying, and just uh, so, like most of it's fine. And then he just gets in a race and just like, dude, what the fuck? Like, I don't know. Anyway. Meraith and Steeply. Moraith's wife had been in an irreversible coma for 14 months. He notes that Steeply has the ugliest feet he's ever seen and is the most blatant giveaway of his masculinity. His first attempted high heels have rendered his feet pinched and pained and several toenails rotting off. The Quebecois spy agency had a tendency to give spies ridiculously unsuited roles, whites as black, healthy people as cripples, and here a giant man as a female journalist. Both men are reluctant to leave the shelf. Steeply wonders how Maraith even got up here with his wheelchair in the first place. It is a known stereotype of the wheelchair assassins that they tend to show off and refuse to acknowledge any physical limitation. Steeply complains to Maraith that the Quebecois tactics are puzzling. They seem less about gaining anything and more sheer destruction and misery. Other groups have demands and aims and goals. Quebec just causes mischief leading to nothing. Steeply explains what Americans want. Decent leisure time, freedom of choice, love for your wife to not think your work requirements are indicative of a personal fetish. Uh, Marath sneers and says, the loyalty of a domestic pet. Steeply says, for all Americans to seek their maximum pleasure is to the greater common good of all. Marath asks, what about when pleasure is at the cost of somebody else's pleasure? Steeply responds that those people are regarded as sickos, sadists, and deviants who can only feel pleasure by taking from other people. Those people are to be treated with compassion, but aren't a part of the big picture. Meraith posits a, c- a scenario of a zero-sum game, a bowl of pea soup. Both desire only one can have, to not have causes pain. What then? Steeply explains it would be determined through negotiation. Steeply goes off the deep end, presuming numerous scenarios that Maraith would get would use to get around this to ridiculous ends until he posits that Morayth will posit that because he's Canadian, he'll be treated as less important and deprived of his soup by force, yada, yada, yada. Morayth says, if I am in this moment desiring soup, how do I get past that and find a way to care about our long-term happiness from not simply taking the soup? Delayed gratification, says steeply. Morayth makes the argument that releasing the entertainment is the ultimate in freedom. To prevent someone from gorging themselves to death, would be the most un-American thing you could do. Anything less un-American. Moraith randomly points out that his wife was born without a skull. So, a lot of shit going on there. I do feel like Moraith is kind of giving steeply, uh, kind of luring him into his trap. Like, you know, well, if you're saying all this, then how can you be against the entertainment? Like, you know, if, if the entire thing is, well, Americans have freedom of choice, even if it's not good for them, you know, then how could, you know, people uh, step into this trap and are so infinitely entertained that they die.
1: You mentioned before <clears throat> perhaps wanting to, like, you know, combine all the maritz deeply stuff and just read it. Is, yeah.
0: it. is it enjoyable for you this time around? No, not 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 at all. I need to, well, I here's the thing. Because I haven't finished the book yet, I haven't gone back and read that yet. When I, it, again, I would like to go back and read this once I have, like, the bigger picture because i know they're like stumbling around stuff but at the same time they have their own motivations that haven't really like this is the only action we've seen from them is them talking so i think yeah once once everything's played out it'll be a little bit more uh enlightening to go back and look at them, these things like because again we've seen them a few times and we're only getting in now like oh his wife was in an irreversible coma and was born without a skull so
1: well, maybe I'll come back later and see if there's a payoff for you. Um, mm-hmm. It's not fun. I, I picked this up to read it and it was like fucking homework. I was like, Jesus. <laughs> like yep. it, when I was, I used to really enjoy reading this. So I was thinking about like as a writer, like why it's there and how mm-hmm. we teach it to my students. And I think it's there as like a Greek chorus function to, to tie the addicts at a recovery house Right, together with the Onan stuff, with the, the governmental forces. So right, they're, they're,
0: they're, discussing, they're discussing the themes without getting directly involved. Aside from Steeply, who we know is like talking with Orin, but other than that, he's, it, neither of them have been too active in the other stories that are happening, though they are discussing the exact themes from those stories.
1: So if it works, it works because it makes us think of Onan and everything that's going on in the U.S., it makes us see, see America as an addict, as America is having substance abuse problems with not being able to do a choice. I actually read a book um, about the oil spill in Florida like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the book was making the big point that America's addiction, like capital A addiction to fossil fuels and oil, is exactly mappable to any individual's addiction to alcohol or heroin in terms of the damage it does to the body, if we're mm-hmm. being metaphorical. The damage it does to relationships with other countries um so it's interesting to think of america as a person that is addicted to oil for one thing addicted to power addicted to um charisma for trump Mm -hmm. anti-charisma whatever the fuck that bullshit is but the (laughs) the idea that america is different and always better Mm -hmm. even though we're obviously very very bad right now compared to the rest of the world um i think as an author, like, I'm just trying to think, like, what would be going on in my head to write this stuff that's just not fun to read. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the best. That's what he's trying to do. We'll see if it works.
0: Yeah. I mean, it clearly works for some people. I really love that notion of uh, looking at looking at a country as an individual where uh, th- this has come up a few times where I have a few friends who are way into conspiracy, which I just... I don't like. I, th- I think it's very unhealthy. It can be fl- like you know, sorry, like aliens and shit. Yeah, it's it's fun to think of, but uh, it, it, to me, it, looking at America as a person, it's so like, oh no no. If America is a person, it is somebody with like definite addictions and no long term. Like, well, why do I want to stop? Because things will be bad for like a few months, and I'll have to change. Like, yeah. why can't I just? Just, uh, I, I'll just keep eating and then eventually when I run out of food, I'll, I'll figure something out. And for me, so much of that conspiracy stuff is to me, the world itself is so clearly like, these are people who do not, it's not that they don't think long-term, they don't care long-term. Like it's all about fucking over the guy, trying to take something off, or yeah, you're, the pea soup, you're both floating there, the pea soup. You got to get it first. Who cares what happens to that guy? We'll deal with that after. We need soup in our bellies.
1: And hey, it would be funny, we should collaborate to like, or do a comedy sketch, like, if we think of a person, like 20 character traits, that mm-hmm. is in America, and like, draw a picture of that person, like, who is oh, that God. person? What do they listen to? God, can you, the, the terrible music they probably listen to, like country <laughs> music? I mean, I can't imagine.
0: Yeah, uh, that probably would not be far off, because I mean, again, if you just, if you broke down the money, what Americans spend their money on, the the average American is, you know, Walmart. Uh, just, yeah, Walmart and country. I remember, I actually read some of the ones I found very interesting. They were talking about what is the most average thing you could be on the planet. And I think what they came down to is a Chinese man between 25 and 40. Just in like of all the subgroups, there are the biggest, like, this is the biggest of those groups that are out there. In that, like, there's half a billion of them. Which made me feel like, okay, as an American, I feel, I, I don't feel as basic for a change. Good for right. me. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And and not to go down the Trump wormhole, but hearing them talk about like America needs their choice and stuff and America needs maximum choice. It reminds me of people like running down the street saying, Oh no, I'm not going to wear a mask or or, Hey, give me my gun. It's the second. It's my right to have a gun. I want 10,000 assault rifles. It's why are you trying to take away the rights that are mine? And you're like, well, whatever.
0: See, I've argued with friends about that. It's like, yep. (laughs) <laughs> using that same line of reasoning, there is no, uh, using your f- philosophy, there is no logical reason you are not entitled to buy a nuclear warhead if you have the money for it. Like, you know, why government has it? Why can't you have it? I think we can all agree though, an individual having a nuclear warhead, like, but suddenly like, okay, so um, killing a million people is terrible, but uh, for me, there's such a Darwinist anger. Like I remember after the Newtown shooting, and seeing the pictures of that fucking kid. Like, this is a kid who can barely tie his fucking shoes, but was empowered to kill. That guy could not have killed four six-year-olds without the six-year-olds deciding to, you know, gang up on him and beat the shit out of him. But he had a magical fucking gun that made him feel like a big boy, and he just got to mow down a bunch of fucking children. Like, some people are not supposed to have power, and guns are a thing that I don't fucking know.
1: Just to depress you, I, I still remember Newtown happening and talking to friends and being like, this is the worst thing that ever happened, but if there's a rainbow, they have to outlaw guns now. The NRA yep. has to go away. And it's what? 10 years later, and it's like, what the fuck?
0: No, and it's just, uh, I don't, this is the thing that I've changed. I've gone so much to the left. For one thing, just this, uh, the fact that, this is the big thing I keep throwing whenever I argue with people online, is like de- Democrats, win elections by getting more people to vote and republicans win elections by making sure some people can't vote and that is the most like i don't care what your fucking theory on taxes are you can think whatever you want that is the least fucking american thing you can do is to make sure other people don't get a fucking say and it it just does me. just looking at these people online where it's like the really infuriating thing for me is that these people that I see online are all pro-Trump. Like, here's the thing, my thoughts aren't like, yeah, I want Biden to win and we're gonna fuck you over. No, you're going to do so much better under this system. That's what infuriates because you're not just voting for Trump, you're voting for Trump and people like me and my friends to get fucked. And in my system, the guy I want to win, you're still doing better. You're just shitty, unempathetic people because you think, oh God, this fucking- Let's
1: let's calm down. (laughs)
0: Happens to us all. Back in pre-subsidized time, after every after every tournament, at the perfunctory dinner, after Eric Clipperton would attend unarmed. Oh, okay. It, see, it's topical. He, it, we got Clipperton at his Glock here. Uh, he would attend unarmed, eat with Mario, and stand expressionless while receiving his first place trophy. Then disappear back into the world. Won every trophy, but was out without rank or legitimate victory. His tendency to appear and disappear only made his hollow winds get another thing that made people treat his existence as a voluntary choice. At the inception of ONAN and subsidized time and the tennis systems were integrated with Mexico and Canada, some clueless new guy didn't know how the system treated Clipperton. And suddenly he was ranked number one 18 and under boys in every magazine in America. Oh, I, I love when technology fuck ups lead to shit like that. Uh, Pemulus personally makes a ton of money betting on Clipperton with ignorant sports bookies. Clipperton arrives in the rain to Enfield with no gear, led onto campus by James and Candenza, over the protest of Shtit and Cantrell. James, Clipperton, and Mario go for a personal guidance session in a dorm room, the details of which Mario has never divulged. What is known is James sent out a beep for Lyle the sweat guru, but before he arrived, Clipperton grabbed the Glock out of his pocket, for the first time with his right hand, typically filled by his racket, and blew his brains out before them. Of course, Mario was wearing his head-mounted bolex at the time, capturing it all on film. It's revealed at the funeral that Clipperton came from Crawfordsville, Indiana. His mother was a volumatic and his father a hail-blinded former soybean farmer. This would be the second of Mario's two funerals that he has thus attended so far in his life. He had to argue with his dad to get him to agree that the funeral should not be filmed for a tennis documentary to which James relented. Mario probably told Lyle everything, but never went to James or Avril. Mario insisted he cleaned the room himself, which took him all night. The room has been locked ever since, with the tasteless sign, the Clipperton Suite adorning it, a place athletes are oftenly joking, often jokingly threatened with being sent to when they attempt to find cheap shortcuts to tennis success. The entire time... Think- con- oh, go for it. <clears throat>
1: Um, one, my favorite character, I think, in the book is Pemulus. We all knew that kid when we were 16. Pemulus yep. is so fucking good. I knew five of my friends. Mm-hmm. Steve Avancho was just like Mike Pemulus. Awesome. Awesome yeah. character.
0: You got, you got to love somebody who not only sees through the bullshit, but has found a way to make it work for them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well said. That, that's mm-hmm. Pemulus. And then another thing to get into Wallace's like aesthetic theory, I think, the Clipperton thing is, is a good piece. So we have these like piece where we're like, why the fuck is he bothering us for 20 pages about Clipperton is a throwaway, right? But he's always talking about how he wants the reader to have to work hard to get at stuff and not just to sit back and be passively entertained like people watching the entertainment. Um, so Clipperton, you can't just throw it away and skim it because in there we figure out that IJ's film is in Jim's head. Mm-hmm. in his grade. That's like the only, one of the only pointers to that big plot point that becomes a big plot point. Um, and again, it's annoying as a reader, especially now that I'm older and I, I don't want to waste my time with shit. Mm-hmm. But it was Wallace's stuff like, hey, you can't skip the page because this sentence out of this infinite sprawl is incredibly important. And you're going to have to find it mm-hmm. and connect it. <laughs> and that makes him happy. And uh, I'm the opposite as
0: an author. I want to make things easy. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I think that's what he's I, working with. I mean, it's again, it's it's fun a little bit seeing somebody go so far off the map, try their own thing. Um, see, the the Clipperton thing doesn't particularly bother me just because, like, it's actually engaging for me. It feels like a lot of the mountains he's made early on in the novel are just they're they're not enjoyable on their own. So for me, th- those are the real hurdles initially. Whereas the Clipperton thing, at least like. You know, it's a thing that happened. It's, it, he had, it, it happened to two of the major characters, uh, James and Mario. So, like, it, at least it has a direct thing, whereas opposed to, like, a lot of the, um, like, you know, we meet Kate Gompert for, I think, like, nine, ten pages very early on in the book, and then we don't see her again for 400 pages, and she's not doing anything. She's just there.
1: Uh, you broke my heart, Fredo. The Kate Gompert scene is my favorite scene. I think it's the best written scene in the book.
0: I don't. I don't particularly have a problem. It's just. It's so. I, I guess because it's just in the beginning of the book, it's like. Oh, it's like that Sierpinski gasket thing, where instead of looking at it as like the triangles, it's like he's building a bunch of different like islands, and only later on are we getting the bridges between those islands and understand their connection. But uh, I
1: would think of it, um, I'm a big chess player, and so oh, islands yeah. comes into this. I always think at the beginning of a book, especially a thousand-page book, is developing your pieces. So mm-hmm. in chess, you're taking this pawn up, you're taking this pawn up, maybe a knight here. And they have no connection. But have, have, if you're playing well, they, do, they are literally pawn islands. And if you're playing well, then they get connected and fortified. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, they're sort of vulnerable and weak, and they're not doing much. So I think that happens. And some authors do that better than others. Um, and you're right. I mean, I just love Kate Gompert. And maybe it's because I've read the book more. So we won't mm-hmm. go down that.
0: But. Well, I, I assume more is gonna happen with her like you know she had an interesting story it's just to me it was very frustrating like oh here she is and we'll we'll see her in a few hundred pages like eh.
1: and the same happens with I heard you you having the same problem and I don't blame you with um, Ken or Davey the guy who the guy who was waiting for the girl whatever and you're like yeah, oh. and then he reappears of course but you're like is that the guy who
0: was weak mm-hmm. Well, it's, I've also gotten a lot softer on the book just because the the problem is in the beginning, it, 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 reading it, it, it was probably very different when you were reading it in uh, the 90s because you really didn't have any idea of who David Foster Wallace was as a person. You didn't have any of these preconceptions about him and his fan base. So in the early part of the book, all uh, completely free of context, I ascribe that context to David Foster Wallace and his fans. And that was what made it particularly so unappealing to me. It's like, Oh, okay. This guy's a genius, but no one can understand him. Gotcha. Okay. Poor, sad, lonely kid reading somewhere. Okay. I see right through you. And for me, it just felt lazy. Now it's coming together and it's a whole other thing, but very early on that uh, it's such a turnoff because there's just so many of those, like, you know, it's like, it's like the, the, the nice guy theory. Like, oh, why don't people like nice guys like me? Like, because the way you see yourself is not the way you fucking are.
1: Yeah, I I wanted to talk about that because I think you hit on something and you'll just have to explain to me because I'm, because you, like you said, I read it before there was a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, he was always like a goofy. I always got annoyed at him because he was too goofy and -hmm. trying to be too funny. But I think your gen, I I think the younger generations, one, because of this is water, so everyone Mm -hmm. gets that in 12th grade or something, two, because of the way he died, and three, because of the caricature of the fucking hipster guy who goes to Brown University with big glasses and skinny jeans who's telling mm-hmm. every girl he meets to read it in the chest. So, but I think there's this idea that David Dave is like this ponderous, like, moralist lecture guy who's like, I'm smarter than you and this is the way you should live your life and why would I want to read that guy's book? Mm-hmm. Uh, is that sort of the way that you go into thinking about him? Because his books are really maybe you don't know, like his humor, I don't really get into it anymore, but he's trying to be funny. He's trying to be actually he's going out of his way to be low culture and to talk about MTV and not to talk about philosophers and stuff like that.
0: Uh, For me, there's just, there's certain roadblocks. Well, I, I I said one of the big things for me personally is just, I got into him too late. Like I, I, I first tried reading him when I was 22 by that point i'd gone i'd read all of vonnegut i'd read a bunch of hunter s thompson i got really into tom waits who has his own poet kind of thing so i feel the people who are the super fans of him have to be molded by him in a certain extent and i was already molded right so i really like i just i didn't find it funny i didn't find it charming uh I, it, it almost feels like somebody's fucking with you, like particularly with some of like the ridiculous words that he uses. Which it, again, it's fine using big words. I like using big words, but then when you go looking, like there was no reason to use that. I remember on the cousin Frank episode, he said something like, Ooh, "What's that word?" and he looked it up, and it just meant like skinny. It's like, why? Right.
1: Um,
0: but now, there is a there is a ponderousness to it again this goes back to what i was saying about you don't really get to meet real people in the world anymore because the people i've met in person who love this book by and large great nice people but on the internet there are some people who got like i got some hate mail very early on in this podcast (laughs) oh yeah and it was uh the the feeling they were feeling was blasphemy like they were they were upset that I was trying to take down their precious tome, which I tried to explain to a few, like I actually- <laughs> some Did you guy, actually respond? Wow. Um, that's, that,
1: I mean, it's the same human impulse. I and mean, that's, those kinds of people who follow Wallace like that are the same as the people who are carrying guns around following Trump, even though their politics are probably very different. You know?
0: Oh yeah, it's, I, I wish people would just realize, like the answer is to just not be a zealot about anything mm-hmm. by and large. And, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think, I think Wallace got a little bit fucked over by people who, uh, really the truth of the matter is like, he is very popular with people who clearly being smart is the only social currency they've ever had. And like, I'm sure almost everybody, they tend to think it was not appreciated as much as it should have been. So uh, Are you that,
1: familiar with um,
0: Friedrich Nietzsche
1: The philosopher?
0: Yeah, yeah Him and
1: Wallace, I feel bad for Wallace for the reasons you said, and Nietzsche had The same situation, so he was a philosopher of the Late 20th century, um, a lot of people Like him a lot, myself included mm-hmm. But he was really like a nice guy, a funny guy and stuff But Hitler liked him, so for like 80 years everyone was like, oh, Nietzsche's The proto-fascist guy who believes in Genocide and stuff. Right,
0: because he had the whole Ubermensch concept. Yeah, the-
1: and he was like the opposite. Like even in his books, he was like, I hate Germany because I know Germany is going to invade people and they're going to think that I'm saying Germany uber Wallace, but I don't want any war. Um, And I feel, yeah, I mean, not that Wallace is a saint and the whole St. David Foster Wallace movement is weird, but he's the fact that people don't read the poor guy's books because there's some dipshit going around on Reddit saying that he's the best writer ever is just a shame.
0: Uh, it's, you, you know what is, I, I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think anybody's not reading him. I uh, Well, I think, I think the problem is that the book itself is so legendarily hard to finish. And I know for like big literary types, it's not, but like, the, but there's a reason. Uh, hmm. I find it funny when I try to promote this on Twitter, I tend to just look up Infinite Jest. And it does say something to the world at large that like this is a 24 year old book. And if I go on Twitter and look it up right now, somebody will have mentioned it in like the last five minutes in the world. Okay. But uh
1: is it always like I'm trying to read Infinite Jest like this mountain, like this? A, a lot,
0: a lot of the time, yes. It's uh, particularly in quarantine. A lot of people are like, all right, well, if I don't read it now, I'm never going to read it because uh, it's just daunting to people. I guess one of the things you realize is with a huge book like this is just how fleeting a lot of people's reading is. Like they just read like a few pages a day.
1: It's interesting you bring that up. I have a terrible problem um, with social media and ADHD and stuff like that. Like my attention span just doesn't exist anymore. Like mm-hmm. I, instead of watching a movie, I'll watch like the six minute, like version of the movie on YouTube or something. Mm-hmm. Cause I can't spend two hours, I'm an asshole. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think if I were your age, if I grew up like this, I probably wouldn't be like, okay, I'm gonna spend, Four months reading this thing for two hours a day, I'd be like, mm-hmm. "Fuck you!" Like, don't be so needy. I'm not going to read a book that requires that much. But you know, I read it in '99. There was there was a different world.
0: Mm-hmm. There might be something to be said. This might be a book that actually benefits by reading a large chunk at a time, because uh, I mean, I me doing thirty pages a week has been. This has been the right way to do it, actually, because I have time to kind of, like, absorb everything.
1: I was going to ask, like, is 30, did you just throw a dart at 30 pages, or did you think uh, 70 or 20, or how is that number work? I understand we're doing it in chunks with podcasts, but
0: how uh, long? Really, it was, uh, for me, 30 pages specifically was, like, I felt I could do that time in a week and write it and summarize it. But moreover, I was trying to really be palatable to guests. Because yeah, it's if you're asking something of their time, like if if you can't take a week to read 30 pages and take some notes, then I can't I I can't do anything for you, you know. Yeah. But because uh, I know there were other, there's been other podcasts where they summarize Infinite Jest, and they're reading like a hundred pages at a time. It's just ah, that doesn't that doesn't seem yeah. good. It seems like it's just too much to talk about. I'd like to leave the show like nice digestible chunks. So this yeah. kind of
1: I like the way you're doing it because it brings up stuff that like I've read the thing four times and like, I never thought about what you were saying. Like how exactly did interlace happen and what does that have to do with ads and broadcast frequencies and laws and towers and what you just explained is really interesting. And I was always just like, fuck that.
0: (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's get back into these notes here. So, during the week, Gately is a janitor at a men's homeless shelter. His partner is a forty to fifty year old man named Stavros Labaculis, a troubling guy with a long cigarette filter and a collection of women's shoes catalogs. They work the five AM shift for three hours and Gately takes the bus back to Ennett and gets some sleep before staff work there. Yet yeah, uh Wallace is gonna get into get into a lot of scatological, like body fluid stuff that you would not really expect in a literary work like this, but It is in there. Uh, The inmates at Shattuck suffer suffer greatly. Colostomy bags, missing limbs, Carposi sarcoma, with schizophrenia seeming to be the baseline. I'm going to interrupt for a second just to tell a personal story. Um, So about four years ago, I was working in Center City, Philly. And while I was out on a break walking around, I see a homeless guy and I realized, oh shit, I went to middle school with that homeless guy. And I snuck a photo of him and I sent it to my friend. And my friend immediately sent back a Facebook capture of this guy's family has been looking for this guy. So I had a weird thing of like trying to harangue this schizophrenic guy and keep him in one place long enough for his sister to come grab him. Uh, And then his sister showed up and I left and went back to work. And then weirdly, the sister shows up, she's eight months pregnant and uh, like, from parking to getting to Dilworth Plaza, almost gets in a fight with three cops on the way. Just like, ah, my hometown. That's why I ran away. <laughs> that girl died four weeks later of a drug overdose right after having a baby. Like, fucking crazy. And I hadn't... I just figured this guy was dead. Hadn't seen him anywhere. Drive back to my hometown the other day, walking around. Good old, good old Joe Souza, still alive. But... You mean literally
1: the other day, like a month ago? Like in twenty.
0: Like last week. Wow.
1: Yeah. Was yeah. he still walking around all skitzed out or was he medicated?
0: Uh, so, well, I, 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 the same friend from before I snuck pictures and sent to, he pointed out like, oh, he looks like he has a bag that's like one of those bags you get when you get out of the hospital. Hmm. Um, and yeah. I know, see the thing is, I only noticed him at a distance because it was like 90 degrees out and here's somebody wearing a puffy jacket and like a long Muslim skirt and like a do-rag. I'm like, what the fuck is happening here? And I got close, I'm like, holy shit, that's Joe Souza. So, yeah, um, okay. That's a cool story. Um, if I can plant
1: my flag on something, uh-huh. I fucking love Don Gately, man. And I, like I was saying before, these scenes are just the only thing that matters in the book to me now. Mm-hmm. So I've worked in places like this. I've never been in there as a client. And I'm <laughs> writing a book now based on um, working at a rehab. So I'm, I'm working on a book that's set in a rehab, but it's like the opposite of this. It's focused on the people who work there, like the, the resident advisors and okay. case managers and stuff and not the clients. Because it was interesting to me because I worked at a place like this when I was like 21 and 22. And I was just fucked up. I was drunk all the time. It was like i high on whatever. And I was there to like take care of the messed up people. So it was really cool that we had this crew of just like people in their 20s who hadn't figured out what they were doing yet. They were literally just as messed up as the either mentally ill or drug addicted people they were serving. Mm. But we got to like dress nicely and we would have like a little name tag and we would get to like make the progress notes. But when we went home, there was really no big difference. And that's what I'm trying to explore in the, in the book I'm writing, which is of no interest to anybody. Hmm. But I, I, thing. I think he's very real in these scenes. I've been, I've been in these places. It's really good.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that idea you get into of just the classification of like, we're all, we're all a bunch of lunatics here, but some of us get like nice name tags and just like kind of uh, a, what, what, what's the word? Pre- prescribed authority, you know?
1: It makes you think, I mean, it's a term that gets thrown around a lot, but um, it makes you think of white privilege. Like all the shit that I did as a teenager up until I was like 30, mm-hmm. and I just had this net because I'm a white suburban kid and my parents have money. And if I didn't have that, I'd be in jail. Dead.
0: Uh, this is this is why I wish my dad was around to argue with because he was uh, he was more like a biker guy he he was conservative because he worked for Boeing like his whole thing is like you know re- Republicans mean war and that means I stay employed like that's fucked up but okay but he was a little racist and I would have loved to have pointed out to him like Dad you and all your friends were fucking drug users beating the shit out of people but you never got like that's the only di- like you know the fucking the weird split of like, ah, they're, they're a bunch of animals. Like dad, you just in- introduced me to your friend who got out of jail for fucking murder. Like and his what?
1: nickname is probably like animal.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dude, my fucking, my dad's best friend and my sister's godfather, his name is foot. I, <laughs> I have never, my entire life known him as any other name. His name is foot. And all I know is he has some, he runs with the Hells Angels. He has some weird job in Puerto Rico. And even now in my 30s, whenever I see him, he'll just give me $100. <laughs> like that's – God, so many fucking characters again. They all – Yeah, it's an interesting country to be
1: a guy But So, yeah, um, keep, your eye, keep your mind on Don Gately as you go. I, I think he's
0: I, – I like, like the stimulus. He's amazing. I like Don Gately as somebody who's actively working on himself. Uh, particularly when he's dealing with Jeffrey Day. And I feel like that's the first time we really sit in uh, Gately's brain. And I love watching his, like, base impulses rise up of, like, you know, the way he's done, I could knock his fucking head off. But then again, I mean, who am I to judge or anything? Like, his ba- watching somebody fight their bad programming in their head is very fascinating to me because I feel it's something – it's something even the best of us, like it's, it's a hard thing for anybody to be self-aware. And unfortunately, the truth is it's just practice and some people do not even have that capability and never will, so.
1: You said it beautifully, Jesse. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. The funny thing with Jeffrey Day is that David Foster Wallace beat us all to the David Foster Wallace fanboy caricature. Yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey Day loves him for the jest, I'm sure.
0: I wonder if he's aware of that at
1: all. Like if I promise you he is. Wait until you see the end with Hal. You okay. know, I think like, like the shit jokes here. I think it's him trying to be like, hey, I'm just a regular guy that you can hang out at the bar with and talk about cartoons and, mm-hmm. and taking shits and all these weird little jokes. I'm not just this ivory tower guy who's been mm-hmm. in college his whole life, which is what Wallace was. He was just mm-hmm. a college I think he he gets into trouble trying to say I'm a real guy
0: when he's not. Mm-hmm. Well, this is all right. This is something I still need to grapple with him a little bit because uh, he seems like one of these guys, and this is one of these guys I've always had a problem with, and uh, it's a thing in comedy. But it it sounds a little obtuse, but it'll make sense when I say it. It's a, it's a little bit of the nice guy thing, whereas I've seen so many people, particularly in like the comedy circuit, who um like maybe they come from like a nerdy background or something like that. They've always just been kind of like all oh, shucks. And then like the world comes at me. And then once they get a little bit of power and to see how they abuse it. And you can almost like see in how they describe themselves. Like, well, no, that's something like, I'm just a little nerdy guy. That's something bad people do. I'm not one of them. I'm this little nerdy guy. So for me, it's almost like that. Like, Ugh you talking not, about Louis C.K. I'm not talking about Louis C.K. I'm no. actually a, a, a fan of his. I figured you were a fan of him. It
1: sounds <laughs> like. here are you? Can you give without maybe you don't want to name names? I'm just thinking of comedy. Like, is there uh, you know I can think
0: of? Well, actually, well it, here's the thing. It would be on the opposite side of that. I would say I'd put that on the people who uh, went after. Mm, God damn! See, it's hard, it's hard to use Louis C.K. as all right. Yeah, you know what? Okay. I'll, I'll 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 use the example. Um, there is a small comedy theater in town in Philly, which thankfully this COVID thing has like destroyed them. But a uh, bunch, of, bunch of improv kids and the whole idea is like, yeah, we're going to start this little place going to be just for us. And we're, we're going to buy the place with a Kickstarter type thing. And as soon as they became like an important thing in Philly comedy, it's like, no, you're not here. You work with that guy. You're not allowed to work here anymore. We don't, we don't allow anything like that. And got up their own ass enough that like we don't want you here because you work with that offensive guy. Meanwhile, like the guy they're saying you can't work here is a well-respected, like black comic. So it's like they're they're so woke, they're yeah, we're so woke that like black people aren't allowed here anymore. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, but we're the good guys. Like it's yeah. it's jock football players, they're racist. Like, no, dude, it's you. Like you're being a fucking so. And I think David like, Foster Wallace a little bit with how much he got in trouble with the Me Too thing in reverse, like, I could absolutely him be like, well, no, I didn't, I didn't stalk Amy Carr's uh, son. That's, that's something a bad person does. I'm just this, like, geeky, fun little guy. It's like, nah, dude, you're, you're yeah. dirty like the rest of us, you know?
1: Yeah, no one can defend that. Yeah, It's a lot like what you were saying about the punk fans. Like, if you're against everything, like, at some point you have to be for something. Even if
0: it's a little dirty, even if it's not perfect. Yeah, exactly. uh, uh, um, So line here I really like, uh, quote, there are industrial buckets for AM puking that the inhabitants seem to treat like golfers treat the pin on a golf course, aiming in its vague direction from a distance. Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, The place is covered in shit and vomit and ejaculate. These daily endeavors lead to Gately's gratitude battery being fully charged on the reg. Though the bums are supposed to leave by the time Gately arrives, there's always some stragglers. Worse, some of them Gately knows from his eviction and robbery days. These guys always look two decades older and are a better advertisement for sobriety than any ad agency could come up with. Stavros's big goal is to get enough newly sober guys me, and start a real cleaning company where he can rip them off enough to open his own women's shoe store in an upscale neighborhood with ladies who really pay attention to their feet. You know, I don't wish I was into feet, but I wish I would like to know what they get out of feet so much, because the way they describe it, it's like, it is like talking to a drug addict. Like, oh, that's that, that's a joy I will never know in life.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, fetish culture is interesting because you yeah. realize like the the biochemistry is the same. Like, there are people out there who like feet the way we like other things that we mm-hmm. do. To-
0: I. I worked at a, a porn company for a brief period of time, a few That's years ago. Fascinating, man. Yeah. And we did a lot of blogs and I was fascinated with fetishes. So I would write stuff up. I would do research on like how these guys got into BBW porn or mm-hmm. uh, muscle lady. Porn was still the fascinating one to me. Cause a lot of the stuff that our company got was literally just like these buff women, just like squeezing watermelons and shit. And when That's I got true.
1: so the guys would just be looking at biceps.
0: For the most part, yeah, and there were there were other ones where it was guys like getting like squished and like sat on and stuff like that. When I did the research with the people who really loved this stuff, I found that every to a man, every single one of them had had an older sister that used to beat them up as kids huh. so to have such a direct line like oh my god like to have they have a woman overpowering them so far back in their brain that like this this turns that light switch on. Dude, that job must
1: have given you so much stuff in your comedy. Where did you do research? Just to like on Reddit and 4chan and shit? Um,
0: just look at, well, I think we had a, a chat group in like our, because it, it was like a streaming service. And I think there was like a chat group in There's there. No but, like a Pornhub
1: type company or
0: something? Uh, it's way smaller than that. The, the, the entire appeal of the company is it was for middle-aged people who were afraid of the internet. So like, oh they were going to pay for their porn knowing that like they're not going to get any viruses because you know it particularly you go back like 10 years ago everybody over 50 like I'm not going to look at that because like it's gonna my wife's gonna see it or it's gonna get a virus and you know That's interesting the, the generation whose wives are going to be upset if they see them looking at pornography uh, so but interesting time. I would love to hear about more about that man so I'm, I'm sure that's integrated into your stand-up right actually not all that much it, aside from like one circumcision joke that used to have a bunch to do with porn. And eventually it got edited down enough that I don't even mention the porn stuff anymore. But, uh, my big thing from that, my biggest memory of that was I had a night where I was the bodyguard for Ron Jeremy, which was a much better memory before he got arrested for raping a bunch of people. So.
1: Have you read, um, not to be the Wallace guy who tells you to read Wallace, but he has an essay called "Big Red Sun" about going to the porn convention. Have you read I, that? I, I've I heard about that. Jeremy,
0: I it doesn't surprise He was at all of those things. He's, uh, he's a fucking lunatic, but um, yeah, I, I haven't read that one yet. I know it's out there, and I'm I'm curious to get his take on it, especially considering just how lurid he can get in his writing, just about uh, you know flesh and the body itself like I'm, I'm curious what take he had on that well yeah actually i mean i think
1: you'd get into it i mean i mean i don't mean you personally but you were saying before how this, this book is all about choice and desire right mm-hmm. he really took that to the next level like the book that became the pale king which ended up just being about like the irs it was going to be a whole book about a porn star he was like going to write like the the porn novel okay. um, because porn is essentially the most obvious thing about just here's choice and desire and you can sit home and masturbate for the rest of your life about anything. Mm. Um, so he, I mean, you can call it creepy. I mean, he
0: he was consumed with porn. He had like 300 pages of notes about his porn novel. Oh, I can tell you right off the bat. The, the industry is fucking filthy. Like it yeah, is, yeah. like it's a lot of like, you know what? It, actually, it probably appealed to him a lot because when we talk about choice in this, like, A lot of like, ah, they're choosing to be porn stars. Like, hey, I think you need to be a little bit aware of how few choices they really had. Like, is a choice really a choice when it's your only option, you know?
1: Yeah, I would love to know more about the, I don't know if you've learned this at your job, but like the back end, like how, like if I go on Pornhub and I click this, what algorithm points towards the, you'll like this too kind of stuff? You're like, no, I don't like that. I don't want (laughs) to see that.
0: Uh, No, we never got that, uh, we never got that in detail our our big thing was uh how customizable you could be because like as we uploaded these films to our network what we would have to do is we would have to break down the chapters and then put all the variables that are in the scene like okay there's anal and there's a redhead and there's a facial at the end and uh there's a plot and you put all these like tags on it so the whole the whole idea again these middle-aged guys that like okay the wife's gone for 10 minutes. I'm going to go on hotmovies.com. There, I'll give them their plug, hotmovies.com. <laughs> but they're, they're loving that. Exactly. And it's like, okay, I want to see a redhead lesbian scene with dildos and fisting. Click, 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 click. Here's what we have that has all of that. So if you're a real porn junkie, like it's way more, I would actually say the porn hubs is uh, way more title-based and doesn't, like they have some vague categorizations, but I don't think you can really search for that. <laughs> Whereas this, it was like, Perfectly customizable, which David Foster Wallace would well not approve, but he would at least be into it, I guess. Yeah,
1: he was he was into it. I have a friend I got my PhD with who's like literally <clears throat> in porn studies, like it's mm-hmm. a thing. And I really admire the dude because it's interesting. I think we both agree that I don't have the balls to carry briefcase around and like introduce myself <laughs> and be like, Hey, I'm into porn studies. Here's my book mm-hmm. and here's all the pictures and shit. Like this everybody runs from you. But uh, this guy just doesn't care what people think, and he comes up with some really fascinating shit.
0: Hmm, Interesting. Wouldn't mind checking that out. Okay. All right. uh, So we have information here. There was another kid like Eric Clipperton. Clipperton. His father was an architect, former college player, was the kid's coach. Oh, yeah. Another Clipperton-like kid in that he was independent and wasn't coming from any of the academies. Um, After upsetting two top seeds and winning a major event and being toasted wildly by all his Fresno teammates, went home and drank Nestle's Quick with cyanide. The dad tried to give him mouth-to-mouth and swallow cyanide himself, then the mother, and then the five other siblings who'd only recently had a four-hour CPR course at the local Y. That's a very funny scene and incredibly goddamn morbid. But yeah. again, uh, the, the fear of success is huge in this book. Uh, let me run through this just get through it. Enfield has a Ph.D. level counselor full time specifically to help screen with students to their possibly lethal reactions should they ever somehow reach their goals. She has a terrible habit of just repeating the last thing you said and looking through you. The same, lo- the same look a girl has when she's dancing with you but would rather be dancing with somebody else. Only the newest ETA visit, uh, students visit with her. Lyle and a nun in the kitchen and Mario and Avril take up the rest of the psychic slack. And a great point he makes here, it's possible that the only people capable of reaching the top without going nuts were nuts already. I find that very fascinating. And uh, yeah, just the, the whole price of success, particularly when it's like being foisted on kids. I cannot, I cannot imagine that. Like, you know, you see that academically a lot when it's like a young kid who has like uh Harvard or something in mind and they just beat the shit out of themselves because it's like, I need to make this because if I'm not doing it, there's somebody else working a little bit harder and then they'll get it and I won't.
1: Did I hear about Andre Agassi's memoir on your podcast? Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: I think somebody mentioned it. I think that might have been the first episode. I think Dan Ostrow mentioned something about Agassi's, but uh, I personally have not read it. Yeah.
1: So if you remember, Agassi, obviously, he was the number one player in the 90s. He came up as a kid, but it was the famous anecdote where he had this crazy father who was just going to make like the next Tiger Woods. And so he, he changed the tennis ball machine to shoot like 200 miles per hour. So like Andre is like eight years old at the time and he's just like crying, trying to hit the thing back. (laughs) Um, So he had that kind of childhood, but then he writes this memoir and you learn like when he was winning all these grand slams, like he was on crack. He had this like weird wig that he always thought was gonna come off. And he was like playing with one hand because it's sort of like an image from the book. Like he's running around with one hand, like holding his wig on. And the memoirs, it's actually really well written for Mm -hmm. a sports book.
0: It's a a little bit, it's a little bit of the Michael Jackson thing where like, you can kind of get beaten to greatness. Uh, Like Michael Jordan was a little bit, well, I I feel like Michael Jordan had a little bit extra, but like his dad was teaching him all the time, like as a kid and until he just learned to, until he became addicted to self-improvement more or less.
1: I'm glad you brought that. Did you watch
0: The Last Dance? Do you care about it? I just watched. I wanted to watch it when it came out. I just watched it now that it came to Netflix.
1: I wonder what you think, especially because we're talking about sort of addiction and, and recovery. Everyone talks about Jordan being the best player ever, the best teammate ever, because all he wants to do is win. And now that I'm older, I grew up, you know, worshiping Jordan like everyone else. And I was like, that guy's fucked up and I don't want him on my team. And I don't care if we win a championship. I think he should just be normal to people and not beat them up in practice. He -hmm. seems like a raging, fucked up asshole.
0: What do you think? See, I I don't remember who said it, but it it was a writer in some article about him that I felt like crystallized it so perfectly. Like what made Jordan so competitive with it? Well, not just competitive, but like a real asshole to his teammates is he didn't understand that it, in his head, it was almost like you can do the same thing as me. I just wanted a little more. So for him, his anger was always like, you must not want this enough. Cause if I can do it, like he didn't seem to understand like the level of ability, right. like uh, to, all right, to give another idea. And again, this is just talking about the mindset of highly motivated people but uh, I've heard this on a podcast or two before where they talk about Kevin Hart, the comedian, and how he's very big online. Like, you know, you got to work hard. Like, I'm here where I am today because I worked hard and, you know, I didn't never let anything slow me down. But then another comic was analyzing it where it's like, well, you're also kind of lying to yourself there because, like, the honest to God truth is that, like, if Dave Chappelle doesn't go crazy and leave comedy for five years, there might not have been a slot for a Kevin Hart at that point so it's a lot of that uh mis- mis-attributing your success to what it actually is like because there's something you need to tell yourself to keep yourself going again I said a lot of my Ayn Rand shit was like that was the encouragement I needed at that so, time yeah. to, to think things were possible for me although clearly it was fucking wrong and I would like to think if I was successful in those things I would eventually come around and be like no oh, no it was that and that and this also you know comes around to privilege where like you know jordan he uh could improve all he wanted but he was privileged in that he just happened to have an incredibly athletic body and a fucking brain that let him shut out and focus only on that yeah. but yeah, another
1: uh, local boy kobe i mean, remember when kobe died there was all this mm-hmm. stuff about the kobe mantra the, the mamba mentality uh uh-huh. but he came up with that like after he'd already won three championships, and obviously he was blessed because of his family and genetically. and right. went to this amazing school, I went to school, sort of, I grew up at the same time. We would go watch him play, like up in the Lower Marion. Like I, I watched him play, it was unbelievable. Right. And he wasn't unbelievable because of um, Mamba mentality. Mamba mentality, he was unbelievable just because he was. So for him to, like, when he's 35, say, This is all because I work harder and you don't. Mm-hmm. It's like you saying, like, I'm not, a good, I'm not as good a comedian as Jesse because I don't work hard. It's, no, because right. my brain's not funny that way.
0: Right. It's, well, you know what? It, it's one of those somewhere between the two the truth lies because on the one hand, yes, they were privileged at the same, but also at the same time, uh, Jordan and Kobe were both known for being, like, already being the best players in their game. That- but in the off season, realizing, like, you know what? I'm not quite as good at this as I would like to be and practicing a ludicrous amount to add like a tiny iota of skill where they felt they were lacking so there is they were willing to go above and beyond but the truth is also they just so happened to be conditioned to have the ability to go above and beyond it's not always a choice the the ability to make a choice in and of itself is its own inherent thing like I agree
1: 100%. It always makes me think of uh, my buddy Iverson. I dedicated my book to Iverson. That's what a big deal he was to me. Mm -hmm. But he was, and I'm the laziest person on earth, so I'm not criticizing him, but he didn't practice, and he famously didn't practice, and he didn't put in the work. And he was out of the league probably by the time he was 31.
0: Yeah. See, one of the things I loved about The Last Dance is I love the juxtaposition of Jordan and Rodman. Where, like, they flat out said, like, listen, Rodman's going to run a little late. He's probably going to show up hungover. That's what he needs to be his best player. So, completely the antithesis of of Jordan. Although although Jordan got in, I I could go off into the whole thing. (laughs) Okay, Uh, back in the cafeteria with the kids and Mario's movie. The kids are getting tired, sugar crashing. The movie's kind of confusing with some blatant historical inaccuracies. A really young kid trying to cause mischief under the table whacks his head and is now crying in Avril's lap. There's a footnote regarding an affair between Johnny Gentle and the equally germophobic wife of the Canadian prime minister, doomed and unconsummated, doomed because the PM paid off a specialist to basically give his wife a never healing yeast infection. Fucking terrifying. Uh, This sent Gentle and her into terrible cycles of ardent passion and immediate hygienic repulsion. She immediately jumped in front of a train, as we know so many Canadians do. In the scene of the president discussing with his cabinet, he brings up what a great punter Mario is. I'm not entirely sure where that fits. I'm sure that'll come back up. The official great. name Punter like football? What? Punter like football. I I believe, yeah, he uh, Oh not Mario Orin. Oh, or, Sorry. Oh, okay. Right. My bad. Okay. All right, we're good. Uh, the official, you know what it is. I think they never say his name by name, it's, and I just got confused when I wrote it out because we. But he was talking about. Oh, I saw the greatest punter. So obviously, oh, okay. Uh The official name of the experialism. I still love the idea of experialism, of Canada accepting parts of the U.S. have been termed territorial reconfiguration. Uh, the great concavity slash convexity are street slang that arose from the situation. The meeting has been called to discuss how to pay for all this. Folders with red skulls are passed out, the standard sign of bad news in the gentle administration. When the folders are open, jaws drop and mustaches fall off. The problem is thus. They had three initiatives, handle waste, no new taxes, blame someone else. Now that one and three have been accomplished, they need to avoid number two with the taxes. The cabinet has someone else has
1: aged pretty well, huh?
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, the cabinet has ordered Chinese food today for explicitly this reason. The Chinese zodiac calendar, with its year of the dog, year of the rat, etc., gentle brings up the sponsored name of arenas and stadiums. Why not allow naming rights to the year? Whammo, subsidized time, and we are out of time. That is all our notes. I like that he. Uh, you know what's funny? With all this concept of subsidized time, I had not realized. I had not thought of the immediate correlation of like. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the Pepsi Super Bowl or whatever, but the naming of the year as they have in the Chinese Zodiac, I hadn't considered that, but that is a very good touch. Yeah. Um, yeah, anything to say about that little section of uh, Mario's film? Uh, I mean, that's something I just skipped
1: through. I, I will note that 441, somebody says, and uh, we need to have a tax revolt, a whinge thon and then someone says tea party. Yes, that's right. This is very interesting. Coin it, I'm sure he didn't coin it, but it's interesting. This is 1996, and uh, he has a, another. I actually wrote a whole boring, boring fucking essay, man. I won't get into, it. but he wrote another essay about John McCain in 2000. He was following okay. him around the election, and he was okay. speculating then that the two-party system was so fucked up that the electorate was just going to sort of vote for quote a symbolic rebel unquote mm-hmm. because everyone would just be so pissed off. Um, and again, I don't want to get into Dave Foster Wallace's question. I mean, it's not. It doesn't matter. It's not special. Mm-hmm. But uh, he had an idea. Even here, we're getting at Trump. And you and Josh already talked about it, so we don't need to get into Trump anymore. But um, these little political silly discussions do, do relate to our world.
0: Oh, definitely. Like, I remember I was reading in uh, Hunter S. Thompson, which he was writing about the 1992 Clinton campaign. Right. But... Um, even in that, they, like, a lot of people were excited about Ross Perot as kind of like the chaos candidate, which is funny looking back to think like, Ross Perot would have been perfectly, this is something I try to explain to the Trumpers, like, you gotta understand, most people, we, I would be fine with like a Mitt Romney presidency right yeah. now. Oh, I, I cut off my arm for Mitt Romney. Yeah, like, <laughs> you, like some of it is like, hey, you win some, you lose some, like, no, it's this fucking guy. So to think of like ooh Ross Perot is well I think in that book he said specifically the idea of uh, a third party getting getting uh, enough votes that nobody meets the despite who has the most that nobody meets the like two seventy electoral college minimum mm-hmm. and then causing a constitutional crisis of like you know ha- having to deal with that for the first time.
1: Well, I think two thousand beat uh, and I'm not sure if you're if you're old enough to realize this, but um
0: I was. I was shockingly into the 2000 election as like a young teen. So, you know,
1: and maybe you voted for Nader. Like Nader was when some of us tried to say like, Hey, what if we do this third party thing? And we ended up shooting ourselves in the foot. That's the only reason Bush won. If he
0: won, whatever. Oh yeah. That's a lot of the frustration I'm having right now with the current election we're gearing up to and people saying they're going to vote third party. It's like, Oh, you're too young to remember Nader. Like, Man, man. This happened once and like These right, guys I, are stealing mailboxes
1: yeah. off the street So people can't vote And You're yeah. going gonna to stand by uh, for uh, AOC
0: <laughs> Yeah, I read a whole article the other day Of like a former Republican strategist Who was just like weeping At everything that's come <laughs> of this And one of the things he said is We were already thinking of how we were going to rebrand the Republican Party Like pretty much he says If 9-11 hadn't happened I think Bush would have been such a good president And done such a good job of like remolding the idea of what a republican presidency is but you know history just kind of forced them into that situation and they fucked up they did nothing but fuck and this is a guy who helped get him elected it's like but i think i think he did his best but it was it, it didn't go well and pretty pretty much saying like without nine eleven and without republican already becoming the war party in that kind of push like we don't see a, a trump he he doesn't have like he doesn't have that rising tide to like perch himself right on the top of. It's
1: interesting. I thought 9-11 was the only reason Bush got reelected. He was so terrible. I thought he just got a soft spot because we saw him like throughout the first pitch and, you know, mm-hmm. hug all the fire people.
0: Yeah. It's, it, I mean, you're, you're only, you're only as good as uh, the, the problems you're, you're asked to fix. I mean, you know, people remember Calvin Coolidge pretty well, but I mean, he, Pretty much, he just things were fine. Like, I came in, things were fine. I left, things were fine. He didn't really have to. Calvin Coolidge? <laughs> I do. I, I remember Calvin Coolidge, okay? I... I carry the flag.
1: His connection, though, I think um, we were talking about women's shoes. I think he might have liked dressing up as a woman. That's the one thing I know about him. Calvin Which Coolidge? Might that might be wrong, too. It was Coolidge or someone before Hoover?
0: That's I never knew, I knew any of the presidents as a crossdresser. I know uh, J. Edgar. Dagger yeah. Hoover, but hmm, interesting. All right, well, buddy, I think uh, that is our episode this week.
1: Thanks for having me, Jesse. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, we've got There's some podcast kept going. I'm gonna pick
0: Thank you. Yeah, I still I got to figure out what the fuck. We're pretty much at the halfway point because uh, you forget that with it being eleven hundred pages, you forget like, well, yeah, but the book's like done at nine thirty eight, and the rest of the That's footnotes. So
1: yeah.
0: So, I, don't know. Well, I here. sort
1: of felt your pain, like you are talking to Josh, and I can tell this isn't really a page turner for you. And, mm-hmm. But still, like, if it's a book you're sort of into, it must sort of suck to just be like, I can't read past 30 pages. I'm talking to this dude, and, and like, it's not fair for me to be ahead. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, wanna know what happens like, to this character.
0: I could, I could read ahead. It's just, you know what There's just so many other books I wanna read, and th- the option is either I only read this chunk and I get to read a little bit of other books or I continue reading forward and then I'm going to have to go back and I'm going to have to rewrite notes again anyway. And meanwhile, I have like, you know, fucking, uh, the devils of L- Huxley's the devils of Ludon looking at at me on the shelf right now. Like, hey, I guess you'll get to me in a year or so. Like, no, I want to read you now. So.
1: Yeah. I, I talk to a lot of teachers and in this book, a lot of people won't teach it for you know political or gender reasons, but a lot of people like me won't teach it just because I can like you said, either I can have students read this for an entire semester or I can have them read twenty books by twenty different people like why right would
0: I... different perspectives you yeah. know it's like some not not everything needs to be taught like I remember when they were like trying to teach us in like a middle school music class where they were trying to teach us like the origins of hip hop like do do we have to like yeah. I doubt they were talking about the fucking Beatles in 1962 in music class, but I don't know. But anyway, uh, so yeah, thanks for doing this again. Uh, James McAdams, James McAdams, author of Ambushing the Void. Go check it out. James, thank you so much for uh, doing this show with me.
1: Thank you, Jesse. A lot of fun. Um,
0: go Sixers. Go Sixers. That's right. Go Sixers. Sixers. Go Flyers. <laughs> Flyers too. All right. All right. I will stop recording. fun, buddy. you and I can talk for.